again, turn if you would to Micah chapter 5 and Luke chapter 2. Um, as we're uh, kind of doing this little Advent series, Christ of the Christmas Carols. Uh, so using the Christmas carols that we know and love and sing during December uh, every year as sort of a jumping off point. We're not preaching Christmas carols. We're preaching the Bible. But um, because these Christmas carols are so rooted in Scripture, that's an easy, uh, easy task, quite honestly. Uh, Micah chapter 5 and Luke chapter 2. Let me ask that you stand as we read God's Word together. And now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. And Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this, is, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let me pray. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would teach us. Uh, use these, your words, to comfort us. Uh, grant that we might read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them uh, for our good and the honor and glory of Christ. For it's in his name that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, the uh, author of this hymn, Phillips Brooks, uh, it drives me nuts a little bit that you got this Phillips Brooks, it's two last names. Um, uh, Phillips Brooks was an Episcopalian minister in Philadelphia and Boston in the m- middle of the 19th century. Uh, apparently he was built like an offensive lineman. He was about 6'6 and went about 300 pounds. Um, so uh, maybe today uh, he would have... Um, had a different career path. Who knows? Uh, in December of 1865, he went on a trip to the Holy Land and was there in Bethlehem on Christmas Eve for an hours-long Christmas Eve service. Um, and sitting there had this notion, had this realization, here I am on Christmas Eve celebrating Christmas Eve in Bethlehem and I can't be all that far from the place where Jesus was born. 
You fast forward a couple of years and he needs a song for essentially a children's program at his church. Uh, he wrote the poem we now sing as O Little Town of Bethlehem. He, he gave it to his organist and said, you write the music, we'll name the tune after you. Um, you know artists, you know those types, right? They need inspiration. They need motivation. They need sort of, they need a muse. I mean, they need something that inspires and draws out of them. He couldn't do it. Until the night before, woke up, jotted down the music, went back to sleep, got up the next morning, and children and teachers sang A Little Town of Bethlehem for the first time ever. I'm guessing they were probably a, generally speaking, a more musically gifted bunch than the world we live in today, perhaps. The song, it's as you might guess, as the title might guess, it's about Bethlehem. It, it, it was him sort of thinking back to just two or three years before when he was there for Christmas Eve and, and at that Christmas Eve service in Bethlehem. And it reminded him, he thought back to what Bethlehem was like while he was there. And you, you notice the language he uses in the hymn, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Deep and dreamless sleep. He paints this picture that kind of makes you want to pack your bags. This quaint, idyllic town. The way he writes it, at least in these first two verses. The truth is, at the time of Jesus' birth, it wasn't like that. It wasn't a um, lying still and it wasn't a deep and dreamless sleep in a small town. In fact, it was quite the opposite at the time of Jesus' birth. It was, it was packed. It was, it was filled. And we just read in Luke 2 that, that everybody had come back because there was this census. And, and everybody, Joseph took Mary, who was great with child. They traveled back to Bethlehem to fill out their census papers. You can read Matthew 1, you can read Luke 2, and you see genealogies. If you've ever read them and wondered, they don't seem to match up exactly right. The assumption is Matthew is Joseph's genealogy. Luke 2 is Mary's genealogy. But they're both of the house and lineage of David. They're both from Bethlehem. And so Bethlehem would have been Packed, it would have been crowded because everybody had come back for their census. Okay, this is 2020. We, this is census year in the United States. In fact, I just yesterday noticed a sign that said, it's not too late. I, th I think it might be too late. But the sign was still out. It's not too late. You can still fill out your census. You and I have the benefit of, you know, sitting down at your computer in your officially licensed 2020 work from home sweatpants. And you don't have to pay for gas to travel. You don't have to pay for a hotel room to stay when you get there. You can just you can do it all from the comfort of your own home in sitting down at the computer and just answer the questions, fill out the information. You realize, you know, IBM hadn't existed yet in the first century. They had to go back to their 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 people. They had to go back to where their people were, to where they're from, 
so they could fill out the paperwork and get counted. And, and that was just how the process worked then. You can imagine how full Bethlehem would have felt. In fact, we know it was full because Luke tells us there was not a place for Mary and Joseph in the end. They ended up with the animals rather than with the people. Uh, maybe, they, maybe they couldn't get around town very well. Maybe the streets were packed. Maybe the malls were, were really sort of crowded because everybody had come back. Their favorite restaurant, they couldn't, get a, they couldn't get a reservation. They couldn't get in because everybody else beat them to it. You know that sort of sense of a, a packed and crowded town. A town that's really too small for the crowd that it now hosts. That would have been Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth. But the Bethlehem that we know from the rest of Scripture is a little bit more like the Bethlehem that Phillips Brooks describes. You read in verse 2 of chapter 5, but you, O, of Micah 5, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. In Joshua 15, they've gone into the promised land. They're sort of taking land bit by bit. They've, they've defeated Jericho. They've lost at Ai. They've won at Ai. They've gone on from there. And in, in Joshua 15, land is being given out to the tribe of Judah. Cities are mentioned and and households and, and people, families are mentioned. And, and it's something like a hundred cities named in Joshua 15. All belonging to the various clans and houses of the tribe of Judah. Bethlehem is not mentioned at all. Do a quick survey. The, the top 100 significant cities in the state of Alabama. Athens makes that list. Okay, it doesn't make the list where Huntsville and Birmingham and Montgomery are, but it makes the list, and I'm guessing top half. You know what doesn't make the list? Tanner. Tanner doesn't make the list. Maybe Elkmont doesn't make the list. Maybe Rogersville doesn't make the list. You've got a list of the, the hundred sort of significant cities in the tribe of Judah and Bethlehem is nowhere to be found. Bethlehem is important, not because of it, but because of what comes from it. You and I know Bethlehem, not from Joshua 15. You and I know Bethlehem from the book of Ruth. You remember Ruth and her husband Elimelech were from Bethlehem and, and they and their two sons had, had left to go to Moab because there was a famine in the land. And so they went there where they could find food and, and provide for themselves. And the sons married Moabite women. And while they were there, Elimelech and their two sons all died in Moab. And then Ruth learns, I mean, Naomi learns that, that the famine is over. And so she starts to head home and her daughters-in-law come with her. And then they stand at that crossroads. Everything always happens at a crossroads. And they're literally at a crossroads, literally and figuratively. And from that point, Orpah went home. 
And, and you know Ruth's famous words. Your people will be my people. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will God. Your, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. You hear that at weddings. It has nothing to do with a wedding. It has everything to do with Ruth saying, look, I'm going to worship your God and live among your people. I belong to you now. And you know, as they say, the rest of the story. Ruth married Boaz and they became King David's grandparents. Bethlehem is an important city, not because it's huge, not because it in and of itself is important. It's important because that's where King David comes from. That's where this great king of Israel was born. It's not a fast growing metropolis. It doesn't have all the great restaurants. You know, last year, I I think it was last year, 2020 has lasted way too long. I I think it was last year. Officially, Limestone County became the fastest growing county in the state of Alabama. Huntsville, give it five to ten years, Huntsville is supposed to be the largest city in the state in the next few years. That's not Bethlehem. Bethlehem isn't, isn't some super fast growing city. It was always sort of a quaint, nowheresville small town. It's not significant in and of itself. It's significant because that's where Christ was born. It's significant because that's where David comes from and, and where Christ would be born. Micah tells us, Verse 2, that Bethlehem, the Nowheresville podunk town Bethlehem, not making the list of a hundred great cities in Israel, Bethlehem. That's the Bethlehem that the Messiah would be born in. That is where the deliverer would come. That is where the ruler in Israel would come. Micah lives after David. He's not talking about David. He's looking ahead to a yet greater ruler. Let me make this observation. God often makes great things out of not so great clay. God often uses the unlikely to bring about the incredible. Hey, quick, where's the Messiah going to be born? Well, Jerusalem, of course. Probably near the temple and or the palace. Probably up on the temple mount. You know, it's, that's where, that's got, no. Podunklehem. Out there just off to the southeast of Jerusalem. You notice in Micah 5, Micah envisions Jerusalem is under siege. Read the Old Testament. That happens more than once. Uh, He's probably thinking of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who comes, Daniel 1, he, he builds siege works against Jerusalem. 
and he attacks the city and ultimately defeats Jerusalem and Judah. And he takes um, the, the Israelites captive into Babylon. And you notice verse 3, Micah foresees and, and foretells of delivery. There, there are two deliveries in verse 3. There's one delivery in which she, who is in labor, gives birth to a child. There's a labor and delivery going on in verse 3. But he also envisions being delivered from the oppression and the attack and the rule of Babylon, of foreign rulers. He envisions a day when Israel will no longer be oppressed by some foreign king, by some foreign army. And we know what that ruler will look like. Verse 2. One who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. When this ruler is born, he won't be nine months old. He won't have been created nine months ago. He's older than that. He's from of old. He's the ancient of days. God is coming in the flesh. The the God-man, Jesus. Eternal creator and yet born a baby to a virgin mother. We're told in verse 4, he's going to be a shepherd. He's going to... Care for his people like shepherds for a flock. He restores them to Israel and to their grazing land. And there they will dwell secure, verse 4. He shall be great even to the ends of the earth and he brings peace. Maybe you... Maybe you watch the news and you don't see peace. Uh, Maybe you read social media. Maybe you uh, read about things going on in the world and you don't see peace. Maybe you watch election cycles and wring your hands. Maybe you see changes taking place in our culture and... You start to fear for your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren and wonder what kind of a world they will be growing up in. And you think, God, I don't see the peace. I mean, we're celebrating Christmas. We're celebrating the birth of the one who's supposed to bring peace. But everything I see out there doesn't look like peace to me. Let me... Let me warn you. Let me sort of point you towards a couple of dangers. When we start to wring our hands like that, there are two possible mistakes we might be making. One is to think that the U.S. is the promised recipient of the peace. It's it's not for the United States. It's for Israel. It's for God's people. Not the nation of Israel, but for God's people. We receive peace. We receive security through the birth of this Messiah. These aren't promises 
for the United States. They're promises for Christ and for believers everywhere, for people who call on the name of the Lord. But there's also a second mistake we might be making, and that is the same mistake that the first century Jews made when Jesus was born. And that is to think that Jesus comes and is going to accomplish all that he's promised and he's going to do it in one stage. And what we find is the Bible shows us it actually happens over two stages. He's come once. We're redeemed. He's established his kingdom on the earth. Is it here now? Yes, it is. Is it here fully and completely as it's going to be? No, it's not. Can we yet say, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground? No. You're still fighting thorns in your garden. You're still at odds with each other. We're still wrestling with sin and sorrow. So the kingdom of Christ is here, but it's not yet here the way it's going to be. The first century Jews wanted a savior to ride in on a white stallion wielding a sword. And instead, he rode in on a donkey and with a towel and a basin to love and to serve. You know, theologians have a very fancy, technical, theological term for this. I'm going to teach you really fancy theological language. You ready? Now and not yet. Already and not yet. Is the kingdom of Christ here? Yes, it is. But not yet in its fullness. Not yet in its totality. Not yet in the way it will be. Jesus has come to bring peace, but Jesus is coming again to bring a more complete, more permanent peace. That, by the way, I think that makes you sing verses 3 and 4 a little bit differently of this song. Look at the third stanza. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. You and I, in our minds, are still in first century Bethlehem. I'm not sure Phillips Brooks is in first century Bethlehem in that line. Because read the rest of it. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. Okay, that could be the birth of Jesus. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. That's present tense. He's gone from singing about the birth of Jesus way back when to the free offer of the gospel. He just offered to us, if you will trust in Christ, guess what you get? The blessings of his heaven. He just offered to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's just urged us to repent and believe the gospel, to trust in him and him alone for our salvation. The wondrous gift of Jesus was given fairly silently. The the animals saw it, not the people. They were where the animals were, not where the people are. But the Spirit works the same way. The Spirit comes into 
our hearts, takes our heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh without a whole lot of fanfare, without a whole lot of pomp, without a whole lot of, of banner waving and attention calling. And suddenly you trust in Christ. You believe in Him. You look to Christ for your salvation. And in that moment, God imparts to a human heart the blessings of heaven. Anywhere souls receive Jesus, the dear Christ enters in. You know, I hope that when you celebrate Christmas, I hope that the reality is you're celebrating more than just the birth of the God-man 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. I hope you're celebrating that birth in your own heart all over again. Having yourself turned and looked to Christ and there found forgiveness for sin. If you haven't, let me urge you to do that even today. In fact, let me, I'll just... If you want, you can just take, if you're wondering what in the world would you pray, you could just pray the fourth stanza. It's a prayer. Phillips Brooks wrote it. O holy child of Bethlehem. He now turns his attention to Jesus. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin. Enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings says, tell, O come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. He prays that sin would be cast out and Christ would enter into our own hearts. I don't know if it registered with you or not. I don't know if you uh, noticed it. I don't know if you sort of were aware of it at all. I mentioned um, a, a few minutes ago that um, the hymn was, as the title might suggest, about Bethlehem. You know that's not true, right? You, you do realize, I guess technically, I lied to you in a sermon. You, you know, you think about Bethlehem and its insignificance throughout. I mean, every now and then, you just read the Old Testament and make a note. Oh, Bethlehem shows up a couple of times at the end of Genesis. It shows up once or twice in Joshua, once or twice in Judges. Ruth, it's kind of a... It, it shows up and then disappears. And then shows up and disappears. Just enough to make you go, huh, I wonder if this is important. And then it fades away again. And you think, eh, it must, must not have been all that important. And the truth is, Bethlehem really isn't that important. What's important is the one who comes from Bethlehem. And that's what Phillips Brooks does with his hymn. He starts with Bethlehem and goes, oh, but wait, that town, it's not important. What's really important is Christ. What really matters is that we trust in Christ and Him alone for our salvation. Bethlehem isn't an important city except that it's merely a carrier, pun intended, for Jesus. I mean, its only real significant purpose is to be the place where the Messiah would be born. 
And that's true of this carol. That's true of this hymn. Yes, it's called a little town of Bethlehem, but it's not about Bethlehem. It's merely a carrier for pointing us to Jesus. Believer in Christ, you have the peace with God Micah promises. You have the security that Micah promises in verse 4. You have peace with God. Yes, He's going to come again and bring a more complete, more permanent, longer lasting peace than we have or know now. And that will come when He returns. But until then, may He grant us the grace to extend that peace and His reign and rule wherever we go. We pray with